And I'm sitting in the studio and I had my earpiece in because I was listening to an interview. And all of a sudden, this producer comes in my ear and said, we believe a plane has just smashed into the World Trade Center. And we, of course, had cameras from the Empire State Building that were focused on the World Trade Center. And you could see this hole and you could see smoke and that's all you could see. And she said, we're going live now. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. For those of you who listened to episode 111 a few weeks ago about my recent East Coast trip, today's guest was one of the four powerful women with whom I was lucky enough to sit down. If you're a New Yorker, there's a good chance you know who Jane Hansen is as she has been a constant in the broadcast journalist world based out of New York City for decades. She has interviewed everyone. You're going to hear stories about her interview with Bishop Desmond Tutu that was literally interrupted by the news that he won the Nobel Peace Prize. She has interviewed presidents, rock stars, pop stars who turned out not to speak English. You'll hear that funny story. You name them, she's probably interviewed them. And she must be slightly better than okay at her job because she's won, count them, nine Emmy Awards. Nine, folks. I'm still waiting for my first. Jane is credited as being the first person to announce on air that the Twin Towers were struck by a plane on 9-11. You will hear her version of that harrowing day and the professional battle it took to remain steady amidst so much emotion and horror. She is a big city gal now, but her story begins far from the fancy PR firm on the penthouse floor of the Midtown Manhattan high-rise where we sat down to talk. Here she is, Jane Hansen. Did you know your whole life? Like when you were a kid, did you envision that you were going to do this or or were you on another path that kind of veered and it ended up in journalism? How did that, how did it come about? Like what was your childhood? You were in Minnesota. Yeah, rural Minnesota. I grew up in a town of 2,500 people that does not have a stoplight. For a four-way stop though in the center of town. And um, my whole family, it's a farming family, etc. I was a city girl, 2,500 people. Talk about that as we look out at this beautiful view of New York City right now, and you live in LA, etc. Um, I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a journalist of some sort because when you live in a little tiny town like that where you don't have access to a lot of things, you want to, your curiosity about the world just exponentially just grows. It yeah. becomes giant. So I knew that I wanted to find out about the world, and I figured that journalism would be a great way of doing it. And it has been. It's been wonderful. Was it like when you were a kid, uh, were you, did you see someone on TV that was interviewing someone and go, oh, I want to do that? Well, you know, my father, when I was, I remember when I was about four years old, he would read me the newspapers and we would talk about what was happening in the world to a four-year-old. Imagine that. That's what whetted my appetite for it. I decided I wanted to be a journalist of some sort, but figured I would be a writer, perhaps for a magazine. That was really my first goal. And then when I got to college, there was kind of a great outcry for women in the field of television. And I'd done some acting in high school 
uh, in my little high school of Canby, Minnesota. Slogan, be all you can be and can be. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I thought, well, maybe I could do this TV gig. I'll try it. And it happened very quickly for me. I mean, I had my very first job in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And within three and a half or four years, I was in New York City. How so when how old were you when you got the job in Sioux Falls? And what I was you, 20. You were 20. So and that job where'd you go undergrad? I well, I went to three colleges. I didn't get kicked out. I just kept switching schools because I kept looking for a good broadcasting. Uh, our first a journalism major. And then it turned out the University of Minnesota at that point had one of the finest broadcasting schools in the nation. And so uh, I went there. And that's where my um, mentor and advisor said, you got to try this TV thing. And I did. And I got hired very quickly. And it was just kind of shocking. The whole thing was like very rapid fire. Yeah. So I went from doing stories on Indian reservations in South Dakota, moved to Iowa, where I became a main anchor and said, I want to go to New York and actually got a talent scout from New York who sent my tape around. Um, I thought I would end up in Hartford, Connecticut or someplace like that on the East Coast. But she sent my tape to WCBS-TV and they brought me in for an interview for their prime anchor spot in the 11 o'clock news, like the hottest position they had. And I'm like, uh-oh. And they quickly realized this chick ain't ready for that. Not She's hard. way too green. So then about four weeks later, I saw I got a call from the news director at WNBC-TV. And he goes, hi. And he introduced himself. And he goes, I'm from WNBC-TV. And I went, yeah, sure. And I hung up on him. Because I'm thinking it's, I told all my friends, I'm moving to New York. And they're all laughing. Like, you're such an idiot. You're not going to New York yet. You got to go to Sacramento and blah, blah, blah. And so um, anyway, so this guy calls back. And I hung up again. And he goes, so he calls back a third time. He goes, before you hang up, call this number. And so I write the number down. I think I'm going to call this number and everybody's going to be laughing. And yeah, there was somebody laughing, his assistant, who goes, you know, WNBC TV, Ron Kershaw's office. And I went, in my head, I'm going, holy crap. I have just blown the opportunity of a lifetime. I said, um, hi, it's Jane Hansen calling. And she goes, Oh my God, we've been waiting to see if you were going to call back or not. She's like, girls, girls, she called. And I hear all this ruckus, there's all this laughter in the background. And he gets on the phone, he goes, hmm, who did you think I was? And I said, I thought it was a joke. So I think for, you know, a high level executive at the largest television station in the United States at 30 Rock, for somebody to hang up on him like this kid from Iowa at that point hanging up, I think he's like, who is this girl? Yeah. So he brings me in for an interview and hired me, which was great. So anyway, so I, um, you know, I get here and he hands me all these, all these cards. I go, what are these? He goes, well, that's a voice coast because you got that wacky Midwestern flat A accent, the dropped INGs. And here's somebody to help you with those clothes. And here's somebody to help you with your hair. I'm going, what's wrong with me? He's like, oh, come on, just get over it. And it was really the most wonderful and amazing experience of a lifetime. What was the thing that you think got you to Sioux Falls in the first, like, what was it about you that was, why you and not someone else? Well, um, I would say that in my lifetime, my most important supporter was my father, who totally and completely believed in me. And I want, I want to set this scene because here's a man who never went to college. He was in World War II. I was born when he was um, in his late 30s. So here comes this, this little girl 
and in a generation where a lot of people were not supportive of little girls. Yeah. And who told me from the day I was born that I could do and be anything I wanted to be, despite the fact I grew up in rural Minnesota in a family of very average, if not lower average means. And, and I also came from a very large family of aunts and uncles. My mother was one of 11, my father one of 10. I have close to 100 first cousins. I mean, wow. I came from this family that was large and loving. And I think that I was made to feel my entire life that I had to achieve because I had this amazing support system. Um, so, you know, my, my my mother would have fights with the local librarian because I'd read every book in the children's section and I wanted to go to young adults. And I was like 11 years old and and they're fighting, you know, Miss Laurie and and, and my mom are fighting and she going, okay, well, she can check out some, but only a few. And I have to look at all of them. So I think that perhaps when you talk about that kind of grain or nugget that says, what is it about you that set you apart? I think that probably is where it came from. Yeah. That there was, and I, and I, and I mean, parents influence, you have children, yeah. I have a daughter, um, parents influence is so incredibly vital. And in particular, the support of a father for his daughter. I don't think that relationship, I don't think enough can be said about the kind of confidence that that helps give a kid, a little girl, when it comes from her dad. Yeah, yeah, and especially a dad who's a World War II vet who typically that generation, World War II vet, they're not talking a mm -mm. lot, they're not emotional. Mm -mm. It's like, a that's a tough he told, guy. I mean, that's a generalization, but in general- No, but it's true. He, you know, uh, he told me stories on his deathbed that we never knew yeah. of things he saw and things he did. I mean, he was a hero, like a whole lot of people were heroes back then. So it was just, it, it was an unusual relationship. I have a lot of, a lot of my girlfriends have nothing like that. Yeah. And they're all very successful. But to me, I think that was really, really super key. And what, what did he do when he came back from the war? What did he do? Uh, for a living, what was it? What was his profession? He or? was for a while. He uh, worked at a gas station. Uh -huh. He was a baker, and then he opened. He and my mother had a restaurant, and okay. he was an, a masterful chef. So the other thing I grew up believing was that men cook. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there. So, yeah, and and how about your? Did your mom cook too? No, or, or she, no but she no. was a great baker. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, and they had a fa like a family restaurant in mm -hmm. town. Yeah. Well, one of the only ones. And it was a place where you had weddings, funerals, the Knights of Columbus, the Rotary Club. So, and you said he's one of 11, she's one of 10, or other reverse, vice versa. Vice versa. How about you, siblings? I have two younger brothers. Two younger brothers. Are you way older? Big gap? No, or? no, no, no. We're so all very close. In you age. guys are tight. Yeah. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody else went into journalism, though. Mm mm. No, and when and I'm pretty sure that they all um, think they all think that I'm kind of like out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, well, you're talking to an actor who came from a, a traditional yeah. family. Yeah. So I mean, I think I'm you know not way out there, but I'm also like you know it's like a little bit off the beaten path. Exactly, from everybody, kind of. most of the people I grew up with, and all that. You know, when I first moved to New York, um, I'll never forget one of my uncles said to my dad, "Whoa." You got to stop her. She yeah. can't live in New York. And he's like, you try stopping her. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so then what is it that that's a big win? And I know you said it was a great experience, but was there any part of that? Like when someone goes, hey, get a voice coach. Hey, get your hair done. Hey, get a new wardrobe. Was there a part of you that was scared? That was, yeah, that was almost Absolutely. like, oh, oh crap, they don't want me to be me. They want me to be this version of what they think I should be, especially as a woman in that time period. Do you feel like, you know, is there is there like a slight identity crisis of like, should I be me, the one that they picked, or am I a version of what they want? And how did that, how'd you navigate that? Well, it was quite frightening. And, um, First, when I first got the job, um, I remember dancing around my living room playing over and over and over and over and over the song, New York, New York, and thinking, I can't believe I'm moving there, blah, blah, blah. And then um, when I got here, I got, I arrived probably a week early and I, um, I started to watch all of the newscasts and I saw that many of the people that were on the air were incredibly talented and with long, legendary careers. Yeah. And I started to th- I started to freak out, going, "How can I ever find my place in the midst of all of that?" And I knew that one of the things that was really important for me to do was to learn from them. And I consistently, you know, for example, I might be sent down to City Hall for a press conference the mayor was doing about some subject that had probably been discussed many times before. And I'd go to, to a, one of the veteran reporters and I'd say, give me the context. Tell me the story behind the story. Help me understand why this is meaningful. Uh, let me learn so that I can do the best job possible because it's it's a heady role to be able to have to tell these stories to millions of people in a way that makes it understandable. Yeah. And 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 not to allow your own opinions to get in the way or, or, you know, to just to be as truthful and as honest and as enlightening as you can be. Yeah. So I, I really felt that that was truly important for me to do. I, I can't even imagine, you know, people ask me as an actor, well, one of the common questions people say, how do you know all your, how do you remember all your lines, which is not really, you know, hopefully not what acting is. It shouldn't be about memorizing lines, but that's a part of it. Of course but it is. I always look at what you guys do. And I, I mean, it's, it's a little anxiety inducing, even just seeing the movie broadcast news, mm-hmm. it's, it's anxiety inducing as an outsider to go, oh my God. So you have to know that subject matter inside out and backwards. You're live in front of Millions. Which I love. You loved. I'm sure you did. Yeah, it's, love and you it. Did theater when you were younger, so you had that. Yeah, that that, and I've done theater as well, where it's there is an electricity to the air, and there is like a heart pounding right before curtain, and then boom, you're on there, and then there's like no safety net. Yeah, I, I would imagine doing that day in, day out, like being groggy on a Monday morning and having to go do that and knowing that there are millions of people has got to be, you know, I'm sure it's exhilarating, but it's also got to be scary. Did you get scared every time out of the gate? Did you get no. to a certain point where you were just like, boom, this is it? And and you almost forgot about it. I would get scared on occasion when maybe when I would be doing an interview with some truly you know, either big rock star person, like maybe a presidential interview or, um, you know, everybody comes through New York. So you've got an opportunity to meet the most amazing people in the world. And I traveled a lot. And so sometimes I, when I knew I was going to be interviewing somebody that other legendary broadcasters and journalists had interviewed, I, I was so um, careful to 
to, to prepare because I do believe good preparation is truly important. And uh, because I wanted my interview to be something that would be special and knowledgeable and enlightening and informational. And I wanted it to be good, bottom yeah. line. So there would be moments, yes, of course. Um, but a lot of it, the exhilaration most of the time took the place. Like when the, I had no idea what was really happening, I'd be alive out in the field and things were coming at me like this and, you know, from every direction. And I'd have my earpiece in and one of the, you know, one of the, the producers would be saying, oh, we just found this out. We just found this out. Blah, 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 blah. And you had to put it all together and then have something intelligent come out of your mouth. Are they literally talking to you as you're, as you're speaking? Yeah, absolutely. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm kind of getting nervous just <laughs> listening to this. The um, last show I did, which was a celebrity driven show called New York Live, and, and it was was really a fun, fun, fun show. I mean, the, the whole mantra of this show was fun. We did very little breaking news in it, etc. So um, I had a wonderful producer who's done tons of shows and she um, helped create the Hoda and Kathy Lee show, now Hoda and Jenna show. She um, was at the Today Show, did, you know. Anyway, um, so her name is Amy. And Amy and I had this running joke that she would be in my ear. And if she thought an interview was boring, she'd say to me, is is this boring? And I'd either shake my head yes or no. And then she'd, and if and, and if we decided, if I shook it yes, and she'd go, okay, let the um, third commercial break or third of this. So I'd go, thank you so much. It's been great to have you here this afternoon. We've learned a lot from you and we've got to go. We've got lots coming up. We'll be right back. And, you know, everybody else in the studio would be going, what just happened? <laughs> because. And then would you go break and talk to her break. and get some new stuff? Or would you uh, oh, just. Oh, we just put it. We just add, you know, we just make another interview longer or something. Or she or sometimes she'd say funny things in my ear because it became, you know, a running joke about ask him about this. What about that? Make him cry. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, okay, so you talk about, uh, let's say, interviewing a president, and many people have interviewed this person. What are things, when you say you would be prepared, in what way? Like, how specifically would you prepare by, you knew their background, you knew the issues, You mm -hmm. did you know what other people had asked them already yes. and try to find new questions? Yes. And yep, I would do all of the above. Um, one of the things that I believe is... You can take people places differently by asking them questions differently. And so I would, sometimes it would be so simple as taking a look at maybe what they're wearing and saying, maybe somebody had a pin on that they're wearing and you look, what does that mean? Tell me why you wear that. What's the significance? Why is that important to you? And all of a sudden they'll tell you the story about... The, they were in Afghanistan with this group and this came from some little kid in the middle of the village and blah, blah, blah. Or so sometimes it's as simple as what, you know, how they're dressed or right. some some particular something about them. Sometimes I'll be in somebody's office and I'll look at a photograph and I'll say, when did you meet President Kennedy? You look like you were five years old and they'll tell you this story. So you get things that give you insights into them just by being really, truly observant. Yeah. My people always say, what was your favorite interview? And I will tell you that the one interview I will never forget was um, Desmond Tutu, the uh, um, apartheid wow. leader from South Africa. So we're wow. sitting in really? a, <laughs> we're sitting in a, in a park in lower Manhattan. And as reporters, your time is precious. Time is money. And I, I know I was had a really busy day that day. So I'm sitting there on a bench with him. 
And we're talking about some of the latest stuff he's, he's done and you know, just in general. And all of a sudden, one of his people comes over and stops the interview. And I said, oh, come on, we're almost done here. And they go, no, you truly want us to stop. And he had just won the Nobel Peace Prize. So now we start up again. Tears are flowing down his face. I still almost cry when I talk about this because here's this man who has worked so hard his entire life for equality, for peace, for, you know, with this purpose, with this almighty purpose. And here he has just gotten this. And I'm like, I mean, what an eye to history. It was so incredible. And in that moment, I mean, I'll, I'll never, ever, ever forget that as long as I live. It's wow. truly special. We'll be right back to Jane. What an amazing story about purpose. As much as 10,000 no's may pale in comparison to the work of someone like Desmond Tutu, it has become my purpose and tool to help encourage those of you who may feel stuck or really anyone looking for inspiration. So I want to thank you for supporting the show by listening and to remind you that in addition to leaving an iTunes review or sharing 10,000 no's with your friends and followers, you can also now support the show at our online store at 10,000nos.com. Just click on the store link to see what we have some very cool trucker hats and t-shirts of the highest quality all the proceeds go toward keeping the lights on here at 10,000 nose and allowing me to sip cocktails on a beach in mexico i'm kidding i'll be in costa rica but seriously if you've been listening for the past two years you may have noticed that we do not use sponsors this content is free and self-funded so we designed some apparel so that you can look cool while simultaneously supporting the show so go check it out they make great holidays gifts too, I'm just saying. And now back to Jane Hansen, who is about to tell us about her relationship to the nine Emmy Awards she has collected over the years. First of all, the Emmys are recognition by your peers, which I'm not sure a lot of people know, but it's there are judges that come from um, all over the U.S. that are that are judging the Emmys, and they are people who are also in the broadcast business. And so for them to recognize my work, and I have judged Emmys before, by the way, so, um, um, but I never got to vote for myself, <laughs> which is a good thing. But, um, but um, the Emmys are, uh, they're, they're, it's wonderful to be recognized, and it's wonderful to be known for the work that you've done. And and, you know, they're beautiful, they're beautiful things to have. But I also believe that one never, I just move forward to the next thing. Yeah. And that for me is to just to continue to do good work. And I think, um, I think that's really what it is. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you win Emmys for weird things and sometimes you win them for spectacular things. So it's just like... Yeah. It's just it's an it's a whole interesting it's an interesting place to be. You never it's bought no, into the hype of it. In no, other words. not yeah. really. Yeah, not really. Yeah. And I worked with over my many years at NBC. I worked with teams of such incredible journalists. And when I say journalists, I mean videographers, editors, um, producers, associate producers, people who help book shows. Um, our assignment desk. I mean, these, all of these people could, I could never have done the job that I did without this incredible support staff. And I mean, I've worked with some videographers who would walk through hell for me yeah. and, and they did. 
And I've worked with with producers who would put their neck on the line so we could get a story on the air. Um, so it's so all of those Emmys are all a part of them, too. Yeah. Where does that come from, that humility in you? Is that from your It's being just being pra- just, plainly just, practical. It's yeah, just the yeah, truth. No, I agree. I it's mean, I, th- I, I, I agree. It's like, you know, I uh, played sports growing up. And then as an actor, I see the parallels between your performing. There's that individual aspect of performance. And there's also the team, the team being your castmates, the team being the crew, the team being the writers. It's it takes a village. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it is interesting when you come across some people who, who kind of believe their own yeah. press uh, those and, are the- and don't really see the value of everybody around them that actually lifted them up to the position where they were uh, they don't last able long. to have. Yeah. Have, I you mean, found, have you found that? Or, I absolutely or are there any have. Or people out there that, that you're like, God, they keep on getting, God. And, and like, no, not yeah. really, because I, I find that the, that the, the, the kindest, sometimes most humble, sometimes most interesting, so, and and obviously very successful people, are darn good interviews, and and they're really that they're you you feel a connection with them. Whereas yeah. whereas the people that you're talking about, you never feel that connection. Yeah. And you also, um, I just find that sometimes the kind of quote unquote handlers get in the way. Yeah. Like they'll say, Oh, somebody doesn't want to talk about that. Don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. Talk about that. And then I'll bring the subject up anyway, because I know the audience wants to hear it. Do and you push it? Do, you, are you, do you, you bet? You bet I do. Yeah. And so when I would ask them and they, they would have a response and they'd be very gracious in their response and never, ever, um, I never found any of those people, the kind I'm talking about that are really true authentic people. I never found them to ever react badly. Yeah. Now I found some of the ones that are kind of schmucky to react badly, but. Yeah. Oh, so, so who's your obligation to, as the journalist, to the audience or to the guest or to both? Audience. audience. Always, always, always the audience. I'm asking the questions that the audience wants answered. Yeah. Whether they're frivolous, fun questions or deeply dark questions that could affect their lives. It's, it's always about the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Worst interview. You don't have to name names, but maybe the, was there ever a time (laughs) when you had just, just like where everything fell apart and you, and maybe there are many times like that. I don't know. Or where you just thought, oh my God, this is a nightmare while you're doing it. And you thought either like this could be it, I'm done, or I never thought that. Or you did you ever or you ever go like I am not gonna be able to pull this thing. It's in a nosedive. And I'm <laughs> I not can't pull be it up. Pull it up before it hits the mountain. Well, I'll tell you, um um one of the funniest interviews I that I ever did was I was I was filling in on this show called Live at Five, which was a wildly popular show in New York City for a long time. It had every Every guest you could possibly imagine came through 30 Rock Studios to be on this show. So I'm interviewing, um, he was like the Spanish pop sensation. Uh, everybody in Latin America and Europe knew this guy's name. The only problem was nobody'd bother to figure out ahead of time that he didn't speak English. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was sitting there and, and I start to talk to him and he goes, see, sí, see. Sí. And I said, and I asked him a question, right? And he goes, see, sí, see. Sí. And I'm like, Mm. 
hmm. So I thought, okay, I'll just speak more slowly. <laughs> and then I realized, do you no. like music? <laughs> and it was mortifying. And so um, anyway, so I can I can see everybody's going like this. And of course, the broker who booked them kind of got into a little bit of trouble because it was just so bizarre. And finally, we um, we ended the interview within about 45 seconds. Yeah. I, you know what happened? I said, sing for us. So he just sang a little something. And then that's all anybody wanted anyway. What the heck? So that was pretty funny. Um, I have had uh, I had a a television judge, you know, one of those judges on TV. Um, this was before she became a judge, but she got really irritated with me because I asked her some questions that had been in the news about her personal life. And she's like, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm not. And I said, but you're fair game because you're here. By the way, that noise is my watch. That's table. Yeah. <laughs> and she, now I'd hit the chair. Me. She's hitting me because I'm not a professional interviewer. <laughs> I, I just violate. She I, said she was going to go easy, but every time I ask a question, she hits me with her <laughs> ring. I'm going to ask you about that ring because there's probably a story about that. <laughs> exactly. Um, the uh, and that's by the way, that's television 101 is don't wear clanky jewelry because it'll make a noise and you get the sound guys all pissed off. So and they'll come and make you take it off anyway. So she was only doing it to prove a point. Yes, exactly. Um, but anyway, so so this this woman got very upset. And so we had this ongoing argument. She would, like, wouldn't speak to me for a long time. And, and, and um, I mean, she's furious. You know, she, the minute she got off the air, she took off. And, and I said, perhaps you don't understand. You're fair game. And you got to have a thick skin if you're going to be in, in the public eye. Um, you may be here because you want to talk about one project. But if there's other things about you, we're going to ask you. And by the way, you know, now that I do a lot of media training and coaching, this is one of my big cardinal rules that I give to people. If you're going to do a live television interview or an interview of any sort, make sure you've looked at the headlines that morning to find out what might be there about your subject matter, what that may have nothing to do with your company or your profession or anything, but it could simply be that there's a big headline and they're going to ask you about it. Figure out what you want to say. Yeah, it's really important that you do that because then you're really you're savvy. You don't get rattled and you won't get thrown off. Right. So, right. but there's you know there are people that are unhappy with interviews all the time. But, yeah. but um, you just go. That's that's the gig. That's the gig. That's yeah. you know not my problem. Be prepared. Huh. So, what I was going to ask you before you were talking about being in a uh, you know really up close to. A, a moment that that is a big moment for history, and mm-hmm. I happen to know you were. And correct me if I'm wrong in how I'm phrasing it, but I believe the first on-air announcement of the first plane, nine eleven. Yeah, yeah, and NBC. Yes, I was. Which is, you know, I, I was here nine eleven. I was living on the Upper East Side, and you know, lost guys that I bartended with that were down there, Cantor Fitzgerald, KPW. I have a bunch of firefighter friends that luckily, magically somehow all survived. Some of them were hurt though. What, you know, what, what is, could you walk us through how that came about? Because it's obviously, we were in the same city, but just so different from everybody else's experience because you were working. Right. How did you... You know, well, so I'm so I was sitting in the studio and it was nine, what was it, nine forty six, something like that. And we're sitting in the studio at the news desk and we do a, a cut in. We were doing doing a cut in during the Today Show um, in in a couple of minutes at 
8.55. So it's 10 minutes before the cut-in or something like that. And I'm sitting in the studio and I had my earpiece in because I was listening to an interview. And all of a sudden, this producer comes in my ear and said, we believe a plane has just smashed into the World Trade Center. And we, of course, had cameras from the Empire State Building that were focused on the World Trade Center. And you could see this hole and you could see smoke and that's all you could see. And she said, we're going live now. Now, this is all I knew. All I knew is something. We believed it to be a plane. We had no idea what size that plane was. We had no idea exactly where in the tower it had hit. We had no idea what was going on at all at that moment. And there was nobody in official dumb to reach because they were all trying to figure out the same thing. So we get a guy on the phone, a janitor who lived on West 12th Street, whose name is Anthony. And this is a probably within, because one of the things you start to do is you try to find eyewitnesses so you can kind of tell the story of what's going on as we're trying to get some kind of official information. And all we've got is this picture from a couple of different angles of the World Trade Center, the first one, we first plane hit. And, um, so we find Anthony, and now it's probably 8.48. We're two minutes into the coverage. And he goes, oh, my God, my God, my God, you got to pray for him. They're all dead. And I went, whoa. And I said, Anthony, back up. Just tell me what you saw. And he goes, he says, I saw this plane. It was a big plane. He goes, it was silver and blue. So now I'm thinking, okay, now we know it's, you know, we now, now we know it's one of those airlines. He said, and I swear, I swear to God, that thing started, he could hear the engine revving up as it was going towards the building, which was also turned out to be true. And, and then he said, and, and then it hit and it hit and it's burning and there's things flying everywhere. And I'm, there's dust and there's smoke. And, and he goes, I just, he said, Nobody could, nobody could have survived that. They all, they're all dead. I go, he goes, you got to pray. Everybody pray. I'm going, we can only talk about the facts. Turns out he was right, by the way. Um, but we, and I said, you know what, we, I, again, let me just recap. Tony, thank you. I appreciate your thoughts, but we don't know anything at this moment. And I do not want to set, set panic by letting anybody think that that's what's going on. Here's what we know. And we got him off the air, blah, blah. But anyways, the day unfolded, then comes plane number two, and we're on the air literally watching it as it circled around. It looked like a little tiny mosquito. Yeah, and at first we thought, that's not a plane. And all of a sudden, boom, comes through. So at first we thought, did the debris from, from tower number one, you know, hit the, or the, from the first tower hit the second tower, what's going on? Then we realized, I mean, it was just, there was so little information. And we had crews racing to get down there. And we had people calling us frantically. We, it was just, it was, we thought the mayor was dead for a while. We thought the fire commissioner was dead because you couldn't get in touch with anybody. Yeah. So it was literally going by the seat of your pants for, for and, hours. And that's what I, I've tried to tell people that are younger, that, that, that weren't in New York. And, and It was almost as if you were detached. Yeah. It was so bizarre. So we had, um, so... As we're covering this story and we're getting more and more and more information and more stories of what's going on, we, by the way, had an engineer. All of the television stations in, in New York, all the networks had cameras and engineers always at the top of the World Trade Center. Our engineer that was up there died because oh, um, they were at the very top. And um, so we only had this picture from the Empire State Building for a while until we could get you know other crews in position and all stuff. Right. And um, so at one point we'd really pushed in and you saw what we thought were debris. And all of a sudden I realized those were bodies. Yeah. At which point I literally called the control and I said, you got to pull that camera back. Those are bodies jumping out of that building. Yeah. And they looked and they went, oh my God, you're right. Because I thought we cannot allow 
we can't let that no. be seen. It was and so then, and then scary. And one of the papers, I won't say. I think it was. I think it was New York Post. Somebody put that in the paper. Yeah. I remember that being. It was. Yeah. It was awful. It was just. It was really dreadful. Um. And you know, there were there at one point. Management came into the studio. We were on the sixth floor at Thirty Rock, and said, um, they, "You know, obviously." As you know, everybody went home from every office building in town. But they came in and said, we've had some threats. You know, we know that airspace has been shut down, but we've had some threats. And if anybody wants to leave, please leave. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm at 30 Rock. This, you know, this, this building's 50, 52 stories tall and... It's going to take a lot for them to get to me. So screw it. I'm fine. So I just stayed. Yeah. But my daughter was um, a little kid in school on the Upper East Side. And um, all the other kids' parents came and got them, but not her. Yeah. And she was there. I was on the air until probably 5 or 5.30 that afternoon, straight, straight through wow. hours. Because some of the people that we worked with who lived in the suburbs couldn't get in. They couldn't yeah. get there. Yeah, no, I I mean, so much of this all, you know, my brother, my sister-in-law, my wife all ran to my ha- my apartment on the Upper East Side because they all worked in Midtown. And we thought nobody knew anything, as no, you said. No, it was really, it was one of those situations where gathering information was really difficult. Yeah. So we had to rely on what we could glean from our our reporters, what we could get from people we talked to, um, and then and then it just got so sad. Like yeah. um, like I, I don't know. I mean, we had cameras like at the at the old St. Vincent's Hospital, which is no longer there, and there were there were ambulances and doctors lined up outside waiting for people that never came because you either yeah. died. There were very few injuries, so yeah. and I remember that shot, and 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 every time we look at it, I would just be, it would become more and more and more apparent of, of the depth of what had happened and the that you know that people just didn't get out of there and yeah. then um um it just it, it's when I left NBC I went over and just stayed at a hotel nearby because I literally was working 24 hours a day and as I got out of the building one of the security guards had walked me over there um these two fighter planes came overhead Times Square I thought are those Russian planes or they, what are they? Yeah. <laughs> They're fighter jets patrolling the skies yeah, of yeah. New York City. It's creepy. Um, but then the sadness came with all these people, and I happen to know some of them, yeah. who they'd, con- they'd, they'd bring us pictures and say, I mean, I'd hold them up. And I'd go, we're, and I and I had a, a very dear friend that that was one of those that died, and, and his wife and um, this other, but we just had his birthday party two nights before. Um um, I was in between being on the air, I was calling every hospital because I knew all the PR people saying, go check and see if there's a guy that fits this description there. Because right. we didn't know what happened. Yeah. It was such chaos. Of course, he was ultimately dead, but. I, I just want to shift for one second just because this is fascinating, but I also don't want to make the whole no, I thing know. about it, which was just, you you know, you touched on. So your, your daughter's in school and all the other parents go and pick her up and you don't because you're working. And it, it's a similar, uh, a somewhat similar dynamic that I have in my profession, which is it is fun. I am following my passion. I do love what I'm doing. It's a little different than a lot of people's jobs. Sure. Um, what are, you know, what are the sacrifices? And then people that are listening that are, go, you know, there are a lot of people that are listening that are in a state of, you know, I want to be there. I want to be where Jane is or where, you know, Jane was when she was doing that or whatever it might right. be. What is your, 
either advice or commentary or something to those people that like about the price that it that it, it there is takes a price. to get there and how did you negotiate that? Um, well, so when. 9-11 happened, for example, during that time period for 18 years, I did the early morning news at WNBC-TV, which meant I got up at 3.20 in the morning and I worked. One good part about being a mother then is I never, ever had to take my kid to school, which, as you know, can be a really <laughs> trying situation when they're like, I'm not wearing that. Uh, I'm not eating my breakfast. So, um, so for many years, I then I would be home by you know, early afternoon. So I could pick her up from school. I got to go to all of her soccer games. I got to do all kinds of things that sometimes working parents can't do because those games are in the middle of the afternoon. The sacrifice was that I went to work really early in the day and I, um, um, I went to bed really early at night. And when I stopped doing the early morning news was when she was 12 or 13, something like that, because she was staying up later than me. And I thought, this is going to be a disaster. This kid, can go, she could go do anything she wanted after right. I went to sleep. And I thought, hmm. So that's when I so moved you, on. So you, you left that, you shifted. I shifted into yeah. a show of my own, which was the most spectacular thing ever. Tell me about that. It was called Jane's New York. Did you make it come about? Yeah. yeah you, my, pi- I, you pitched them. I had, well, I'd been pitching a show for a while after 9-11 because the city was having a tough time for a while with tourists. It's why the Tribeca Film Festival came into being, yeah. um, the effort of Robert De Niro and Jane Rosenthal to actually create something that would draw people to lower Manhattan and bring it alive again. So my, theor- my thought was, let's do a show and do it every night that celebrates New York and celebrates all this magnificent thing- things that happen here, culture, sports, art. Um, all these wonderful things that go on that rarely get that kind spotlight. of television spotlight. Yeah. And so it took me a while to convince them, but then they finally allowed me to do it. And, the, and it was, the, it was I don't want to call it a boondoggle because it sounds like I'm, um, that I really played a game. But bottom line is the theory of the show was it was a one subject show and I could go anywhere I wanted as long as I could make the connection to New York. So, example, I'm over at the um, Museum of Natural History, the American Museum of Natural History, and I'm talking to their PR guy. And I said, what's happening over here? And he goes, oh, our our, um, paleontologists, they're the rock star paleontologists of the world. I mean, they discover everything, these these couple, these two guys. They said, oh, they're getting ready to go to the Gobi Desert of Mongolia. You want to go along? And I went, yeah. So I went to Mongolia, to the Gobi Desert. I think I and, saw a shot yeah. of this. Are you in the middle and they I'm, pull back and they, you're in the middle of nowhere? Was yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the camera's a mile yeah, away in that, that shot amazing. and there's no sound. So. <laughs> it was so cool. So, and, and it was really fun. But the fun part about that trip is, is um, first of all, um, Mongolia, because it was abandoned by the Soviets in the late 90s, I think. They literally just got up and left. So, um, so there'd been no exploration for 70 or 80 years. When we were there, we found um, the remains of the fossils of four young dinosaurs, all facing the same direction, which indicated there had been a you know, climatic something that had happened. Wow. Um, but we slept in pup tents, and these guys bring semis, semi-trailers into the desert. There's no roads, so... 
And we flew there in a Soviet military, former Soviet military helicopter with a gas tank on board and pilots that were smoking. I'm like, this is my death trip right here. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I made it. <laughs> um, but anyway, it was so it was so amazing because on board that not only did they have all of the tools they needed for the digs and and um, you know generators and food and all that, but they had some fine wine. And they brought all this great, amazing food, and we had a cook. And every night we'd sit around and, you know, play guitar and sing music and just like, just, it was really cool. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's, yeah, it's amazing. A lot of, I mean, I, I get to sit down with a lot of people like yourself who have somehow managed to design their lives in a way that, yeah, they, they actually get paid to do stuff that they kind of wanted to do. Right. And it's pretty amazing when you line it up. You know, the other part is that all of the hard work that went into being in a position to be able to pitch a show and have someone say, yes, you can go to Mongolia. That's the hard part. Well, but it's also, you know, the job itself is the hard part. It is. I mean, it was, you know, 118 degrees. and I lived in a pup tent and you you could take, you use one bucket of water a day to take a shower, that sort of thing. Um, um, But Experiences like that can be are unmatched. Yeah, and I, you know, I will. It was just really, really fun. Yeah, we had a, a great time. But just another, and I know you know about the illusions of television and the movies, etc. Right. So we would shoot the ins and outs to this show. Um, we had an outside producer, uh, amazing, amazing guy named Randy Pyburn, and Randy had an office at Broadway and Forty Sixth Street, and he had this small balcony. And that's where I would do my ins and outs to the show. And you'd see Times Square behind me, right? But because it was um, perhaps a little bit of an illegal balcony, and because he would build it out, I had I was strapped in and somebody held my feet the whole time that I was doing my, my stand-ups um, because... I could have fallen off that thing really right. easily. Right. So, so you know, here I am looking all glamorous and beautiful from, and from my torso up. In the meantime, I'm I'm hitched into everything possible so that if by chance a giant gust of wind came, uh, I didn't fall yeah. off. <laughs> and you have to and you have to act as though everything's normal, Just perfectly normal. Yeah. How do the emotions of your job, the subject matter of your job? How did that weigh on you and how did you, uh, were you able, would you compartmentalize it? Is that how you did it or how did you put it in your in your mind so that you really wouldn't get lost in it? Or did you ever get to the point where like your job just emotionally weighed you down so much that you, it was a drag or it never get to that point? I don't think it got to that point for me. I'll tell you what 9-11 did for me is it made me far more purposeful. I was pissed. I'm like, you can't come here and do that. Moving to New York originally was my dream when I was a kid. It was it was my forever dream to live in New York City because it is the number one city in, I think, in the world. And for a broadcast journalist, it's the number one city. Um, so I think that it made me much more purposeful after that. But I think every single day you have to put the news and what's happening into a compartment and say, that's not my life. I'm reporting about that life. Because if I were, the hardest thing on 9-11, and some people couldn't do it, some people I worked with couldn't do this, I had to keep my emotions so far away from my head that day. Because when you don't know what's going on, and it's happening right in front of your eyes in your city, and people you know are most likely dying, 
you have got to strip yourself of of getting into the place where you feel that grief and that sadness because I had a job to do. And my job was to deliver as many people as I could information that would keep them safe and get them home. And I knew that I had to do that. It was it was in the back of my head. Every second of that day was do not have a breakdown. Mm-hmm. Do not. That's the obligation to the audience that yes, you're talking about. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because... It's not I about mean, you. It's about it's, them. It's, it yeah. was so terribly important that we gave them everything we could. And, and I've covered lots of other yeah. hurricanes and all kinds of bad storms and, and other disasters and all kinds of things over the course of my career. And I always knew that I had, I had to keep that top of mind, that my job was really crucial to helping people be able to stay alive or be safe or have some kind of comfort in what I was bringing to them. Yeah. And that kept you on the straight and narrow. So so I want to, before I I let you go, I have a couple questions at the end, but before Uh, I even get to those. By the way, newsrooms can be incredibly callous, you know. I'm sure you've been in them where you you start to make jokes about things that anybody else would go, that is really bad, black humor. Well, it's funny you say that. I was going to say this and I kind of withheld myself because I have a habit of, of, you know, talking about things that are off topic. But I just interviewed one of my best friends from college. He was a Navy SEAL. And now he's a trauma surgeon and he's on the Harvard faculty. And I remember asking him, and we talked about this in in the interview with him. I remember talking to him years ago and I said, what's the show? He was a doctor already at this point. I said, what what TV show kind of gets it right? Is it ER? Is it, he's like, no. MASH. Well, he said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually we had a whole, when I saw him in Boston, we had a whole thing about MASH, but he, which he said, yes, got it. But the one he said was Scrubs. Which surprised me. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, it's so dire what we deal with Mm -hmm. that we have to we have to joke around. And he said, sometimes you'd come around the corner and you're, you know, telling a joke and the the family is right there is there and you have to, you know, rent it in. And he said it wasn't that we were. Uh, callous, but if we didn't do that, we would fall apart. Exactly. So we had to do our job. We had to keep levity, or we just so, some just something something yeah. that's that's there that gets you. And I think that's why people in those kinds of professions tend to bond together yeah. because you go through this stuff together. You see, yeah, I've seen plenty of dead bodies in my day. I've walked into some scenes that were pretty pretty rugged. And if you don't keep, I've been shot at. I mean, all kinds of stuff has happened to me. And if you're not, if you don't keep this kind of, um, if you can't keep your head on straight in that and and relieve the the pressure and tension in some way, I think you're just dead. Yeah. You're done for. Yeah. You now, I, you, you've just extended your interview by a little bit because <laughs> I can't hear you say you've been shot at and not ask you about it. What were you what were you thinking then? Did you think you were going to die? No, I was on an Indian reservation in South Dakota in my first job. I was a real I was pretty much of a little smart ass then. And um so and I can't remember what the story was, but you know those Indian reservations out there were pretty temp, um there there were a lot of tempers flying. I mean, you got to understand the situation. There's a lot of people that live in these really crappy houses and this in these awful reservations where they they have to scratch out a living and yeah. you know um we didn't do 
well by those people along, but you know, American Indians a long time ago. And so anyway, I was on a reservation and there was a big, some kind of a big tribal thing going on between two groups and shots were flying. And I was in, happened to be in a pickup truck that was shot at. Also here in New York, I had um, somebody hold the end of a bottle to my neck during a live remote I was doing from a from a hospital that was shutting down. There's a big protest and a sit-in and somebody who was turned out to be really high and some kind of some like angel Were dust. you on camera while this I was happening? I was on camera. Is there footage of this? Is I don't it... have it, no. Oh my God. It's a long time ago. Where, did you fear for your life? Obviously you must well, have. Well, I'm, sit- I'm standing here and I'm trying, I've got some of the, the people who are involved in the protest, the leaders of it, who were, you know, really, they were advocates and they were deeply honest and people full of integrity. And, you know, they're like this. And I'm going, you got to get this guy away from me because he kills me. Your cause is dead. <laughs> like mumbling so that. Oh, my God. And man. so that they, they managed to wrestle him away and he was arrested and gone. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know. That's, You're going, okay, man. No, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty hardcore. Yeah. Potentially what you can come up against, I guess, is anything. Absolutely. Really, because you- what you're doing is generally reporting on, on emotional situations where tempers may be flaring and well there's yeah. a you know you think about all those combat reporters out there that's what i that's what they're I was in just the thinking. middle of they're in the middle of stuff all the time yeah uh that's yeah i mean you know the the, the documentary restrepo you see that and you just go god they, these you know the soldiers and the journalists mm-hmm. what people do for our freedom you know, like I said, my buddy was a Navy SEAL. I had another Navy SEAL. You just, you sit down and talk to someone who's doing that for our country. And it's just nothing but gratitude that someone's oh. out there doing that. So I can be sitting here with a microphone with you in Manhattan, yeah. free to say whatever. Whatever want, we want to know. say. Exactly. It's, it's, it, go, it gets lost on some people, I think. What I want to get to is what you're doing present day. You know, uh, I know in the acting world, there are a lot of um, there are coaches out there and there are great coaches and teachers and there are, you know, ones that have not really done anything and they're coaching and teaching. I know you uh, coach and teach media and presentation and training, presentation training and which is really cool from someone on that level. So just give yeah. us a little bit. You don't have to go. I'm going to send people to your website so they can okay. see um, it. But, you know, let me know how that is. Has it been rewarding? Do you love it? Do you, you know why? Back? I'll tell you why I love doing it is because sometimes people would, I'd interview people and they'd go off, come off the, the set and they'd go, I didn't get to say what I wanted to say. And I go, not my problem because I led you down a path. And you didn't bring it back to what you wanted to say. And I realized that there was a real need for that. And um, so so I do a lot of media training for every, you name it, I've done it. You know, everybody from chefs to chairmen of the boards of very large major corporations to um, tech startups to doctors to, I mean, everybody. Yeah. Everybody's been a client. Um, and the presentation training is equally as interesting because people have t- a hard time delivering their message in today's world, where the attention span is eight seconds. Yeah. According to Microsoft, that's less than the attention span of a goldfish feeding. So anyway, <laughs> so that's great. Um, so anyway, so uh, the presentation stuff is really fun too because it's helping people have real clarity with their messages, and that's so important in today's world because. We got a communication problem going on in this world. I love it when a client says to me, I got it. I now know how to tell this story effectively. Because most of the people that I work with are good, earnest, 
you know, they're earnest. They have a really great message, but they need me because they can't figure out how to tell it in a crisp, concise, and memorable way. And so I help them do Which it. Which is what you told me. And I want to hear more about it as about my opening to your podcast. <laughs> I, just so everybody knows, when we sat down, Jane said, I have some, I, I actually have some things, some notes for you. I've been listening to it. And I was like, oh no, don't, don't tell me before I sit down with you. I'll be in my head the whole time. But I do want to hear what, what your notes are. You got it. I just didn't want to hear them yet. So Chicken. Three. You're a chicken. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I'm not getting shot at. I only act like I'm getting shot at. Um, so uh, three quick ones. And you don't have to pontificate on them. If you want to wrap it up, you can do whatever you want to do. The word no actually means what? Yes. Yes. Boom. Done. Next. Uh go-to mantra when everything falls apart. Do you have anything that you put through your head? Um, well, when I was on television, it would be, it's only TV. <laughs> but it's also just really saying to myself, you're good at what you do. Believe in yourself. Keep it honest. Keep it real. Be authentic. Because when you do that, you will never go wrong. You've just got to be yourself. Yeah. Which is what you essentially said to me when we sat down and I said, I'm nervous because this is what you do. Mm -hmm. You basically said, if you're curious mm -hmm. and you listen, mm -hmm. you're fine. That's it. You could you could hone it. But if you're curious and you listen, I was like, oh, OK, I am curious and I think I listen. Good. Yeah. yeah. And that's pretty simple. Yeah. And then you can get better by doing. Well, the better you listen. By taking her coaching uh, seminar with the code uh, <laughs> Matt D. <laughs> You can get 20% off. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a deal. So, uh, and the last one is, if you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? I would probably in my late 30s or maybe around the age of 40, I would, I would think about, I wish that I'd kept more journals and to, with all the great stories that I did, I wish that I had really given some thought to what did I want my life to look like? Because I kind of just moved, just kept moving along. And I worked for NBC for a really long time and never, ever give any thought to what happens afterwards. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that you always need to have a plan in place. But I do think it's important to take some do some kind of, if not yearly, maybe every five years, do some real reflections on, are you doing what you want to do every day? Does it make you happy? What is it that you could be better at? And I wish I, I wish I'd meditated more when I was younger. I love, I love that part of my life now. I wish I'd given more reflection about taking care of myself instead of everybody else. It's huh. hard to do when you're a mom and you have a career, you got a husband, you got, you know, you got all these, all these other obligations. It's really hard to take care of yourself. And then I think that a day comes when a lot of that stuff goes away. Your kid grows up and leaves the nest. You know, I ended up getting divorced. Um, uh, I left NBC and, and I'm kind of going, and all of that is great and as it should have been, but it's, Take those. Take the time to consider things along the way. Are you taking care of yourself, and are you doing it in a way that's essentially you? Because we have to love ourselves first. That's beautiful. That's a nice way to end. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. It's a real honor. 
it's a nice view here. It you know, is. I'm, You're gonna we gotta take a picture so we can show it. City, <laughs> and I really pre- and, and a shout out to Emily Raber for uh, for connecting for, us for, for hooking this whole thing up. I really appreciate it when anybody you know suggests an incredible guest and and I get to sit down with someone like you it's it's pretty cool so thank you thank you yeah. well thank you for having me yeah you're welcome uh, i'll see you on the podcast yeah. i'll see you on something <laughs> something <laughs> oh i know what i'm going to see you on city on a hill city on a hill there you go can't wait all right we do it every week and this week is no different top 3 takeaways here we go number 1 particularly for all the guys listening Jane made a point to stress the fact that her biggest supporter was her father, who, despite being a very tough war veteran from an older generation of men, not known for their communication skills and emotional capacity, gave her unstoppable confidence. And in a generation where a lot of people were not supportive of little girls and who told me from the day I was born that I could do and be anything I wanted to be. Very, very important for all of us to realize the power that our encouragement can have on those around us, especially our kids. Number two, this is kind of an overall takeaway. If you go back to the beginning of the interview, you'll hear Jane telling me the story of when she thought the call she received from Ron Kershaw's office was a prank. And you can hear her almost as though she converted back to that 24-year-old she was at the time right in front of me as she recalls it. Oh, my God, we've been waiting to see if you were going to call back or not. She's like, girls, girls, she called. And the reason I mentioned this is really the point of this entire show. We were all once that wet behind the ears, eager kid that wasn't completely sure of themselves. Nobody popped out of the womb with nine Emmys. Jane didn't. You didn't. No one. And also, even once you do win those proverbial Emmys, you still carry that younger self around with you. So if you're listening and feeling like this story is so far from you that it depresses you, don't let it. Just chip away. You may not get nine Emmys in your lifetime. I don't know. But you can get a lot further than you think if you can just focus on what's right in front of you. Okay, number three is a classic example of something that appears to be a door closing, turning out to be an opportunity of a lifetime. It's when Jane gave up her long career as an early morning broadcaster because she feared her daughter, who had become a teenager, would now have no guidance once Jane went to bed so early to get up for work. And when I stopped doing the early morning news was when she was 12 or 13, something like that, because she was staying up later than me. And I thought, this is going to be a disaster. This kid, can go, she could go do anything she wanted after right. I went to sleep. And I thought, hmm. So that's when I so moved did you, on. So you, you left that, you shifted. I shifted into yeah. a show of my own, which was the most spectacular thing ever. Hearing Jane talk about Jane's New York, it was clear to me that this was possibly the most fulfilling chapter of her life, ironically. Again, a recurring 10,000 nose theme. I think we talked about this last week with Chuck McLean as well. Where you are now is not the end of your story. So you can't give up on yourself, even when you're faced with a roadblock. If you reframe the way you're approaching it, things change, situations evolve, and strangers come out of the woodwork to help you. You just have to start by helping yourself first. 
Okay, thank you for listening. Thank you, Jane Hansen, for sitting down with me. Go check out the links in the show notes if you want more information about Jane. And please share this episode with your friends or take a screenshot of it and post it to your social media if you liked it. Taking a few minutes to leave us an iTunes review is greatly appreciated. And most important, subscribe to 10,000 Knows wherever you listen so you don't miss any episodes when they come out every Friday. If you like today's conversation with Jane, check the links in the show notes for these past conversations. Emily Raber, who introduced me to Jane, social media advisor, and after I sat down with her for 10,000 No's, my web designer. Uh, Kimmy Culp, my friend and journalist who worked for Oprah and Diane Sawyer before producing the documentary Gleason. She now also has her own podcast, All the Wiser. Or Maria Sansone, child prodigy journalist who was plucked at a young age and interviewing people like Michael Jordan when she was only 12 or 13 years old. You can also scroll through 10,000nos.com when you're purchasing your 10,000 Knows hats and t-shirts, people, hint, hint, to see which other episodes may speak to you. For announcements and promo videos of who's next you can follow me on social media at maddie dell on instagram at matthew del negro on twitter facebook and linkedin you can email us at info at 10,000 nosecom if you want to be added to our mailing list or with questions feedback or guest suggestions thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week 